Neuro Pathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Traumatic early life events like emotional, physical, and sexual childhood abuse and exposure to substance abuse, mental illness, domestic violence, and other adverse experiences have been found to be strongly associated with suicidality, alcoholism, depressive disorders, illicit drug use, and chronic medical diseases in adulthood. In today's episode, we address the effect of adverse childhood experiences for greater awareness and management of predisposed patients. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Tatiana Falcone join me for today's conversation. Dr. Falcone is a psychiatrist with Cleveland Clinic's Department of Psychiatry and Psychology and Epilepsy Center. Tatiana, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you so much for the invitation. So we'll get started with the first question. What does the research tell us about the link between severe childhood trauma and the long-term mental health and social problems? I guess we always knew that there was a link between the childhood trauma and mental disorders. What I think we learned that it was new is like the effect of the emotional trauma when it's early before eight years old chronic more than six months and severe, it is as severe as if you were having like physical brain trauma. So what we did was uh, we look at a protein, it's called S100B. It's a protein that normally is in the brain. And whenever there's a breach in the blood brain, sorry, in the blood brain barrier, it comes out. So we did a study looking at what was the effect of people who had chronic trauma, severe trauma, emotional trauma, and no trauma, and look at the incidence of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and look at the levels of this protein. And we found that in those youth in which the trauma was severe, the levels of the protein were certainly higher. So we'll get back to the protein in a minute, but uh, let's look at the long-term physical and mental health impacts of children that have been traumatized. Can you discuss that for us? Yes. Trauma has an important effect on development. So when someone is traumatized early on their life, you might see effects even when they're like, 50, 60, uh, some of the long-term longitudinal studies have demonstrated that people who were traumatized as children are more likely to have heart attacks later, are more likely to have um, hypertension, are more likely to uh, engage in high-risk behaviors um, like smoking, Uh, even when they look at the BMI um, and compare uh, later on is higher. That's from the physical perspective. From the emotional perspective, uh, they're more likely to develop depression, anxiety, and PTSD. They're definitely more likely to have use uh, alcohol and other substances too. So can emotional trauma cause long-term changes in the brain itself? So there are some studies looking at the um, long-term impact in the brain and 
there's different trajectories. Uh, some studies have demonstrated that there's some changes. We might not know specifically what these changes means, but um, there were changes related to the age where the trauma was, and also what kind of trauma for what gender. So for example, for boys um, between eight to 10, you know, sexual abuse was huge and had a huge impact later, later on. For girls, bullying uh, between like 14 to 16 had a huge term impact later on. So they were looking at different areas of the brain, like they did fMRI in these kids and they look at the fMRI later and they saw some, according to what type of trauma, they saw different trajectories of changes in the brain, but I think it's currently still kind of like in study. So I have seen some data suggesting that you can see uh, with childhood trauma later in life, you can see changes in the hippocampus. Uh, which, which is probably not surprising that the amygdala and the limbic system would be affected, uh, and also the frontal cortex, which I guess wouldn't be surprising uh, with its uh, function. Any other areas of, of significance that have been reported? Yeah, temporal lobe, like the hippocampus, is probably like the one that is the most reported. And like um, changes in the amygdala when um, they're doing also fMRI studies, and even they put different... Uh, images that might be unpleasant in people who were traumatized before versus people who were not traumatized. So let's go back to the S100 uh, beta. In 2003, we published a paper uh, in uh, cancer, and we were trying to use it as a marker, sort of a liquid biopsy uh, for brain tumors. And our hope was that instead of doing MRIs on everybody, that we could maybe have a liquid biopsy that we could follow and just do a blood test and tell when their tumor was progressing or changing. Uh, and while it's a astrocytic marker, um, it's not sensitive enough to tell us those types of things. But uh, it looks like it's coming back around and having a lot of life in the psychiatric field. Are you using it personally in your patients? I mean, if a patient comes to see you, will you do a blood test on them? And if you do, how will it help you? We're still in like that phase where it's trying to validate it. So we replicated our initial study. So we did one study looking at suicidality and depression in patients uh, who were admitted to hospital and look at the levels of this protein when they were admitted and when they were discharged. Our hope was that with the discharge sample, we will be able to predict which patients were at risk. And I think it has like a, a strong signal. Uh, we are looking at our follow-up data study right now. It's been studying like several places for like this purpose, especially looking at the link between the levels of S1B and other inflammatory markers to try to predict suicide. Have I used it? Yes, I have used it and we can actually order it as a test at the clinic. And we see this protein is elevated when someone is like very depressed or they're having suicidal thoughts. And we also see highly elevated in kids who are having psychotic symptoms. Some people have suggested that the protein itself is analogous to the C-reactive protein. And it's just a general marker of inflammation. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting article, the CRP of the brain. 
When I started trying to do this study, uh, initially I wanted to do it in patients with schizophrenia, right? So I wrote my grant and asked the NIH, and the NIH said, but how you know this doesn't happen with depression? So then we did a study in patients with depression, and it was high. Then uh, we sent the grant again, and we asked, can we do it in patients who are depressed? And they said, what's the difference between the depressed and the bipolar patients? So then we did all bipolar patients, and when the patient was depressed, it was high too. So we see that in the last study, we corrected for the diagnosis. So independent if the patient had PTSD, depression, anxiety, in the patients who were suicidal, it was high. And it actually showed a quantitative uh, signal that it was really interesting to us. So we saw that when it was above 0.12, patients were like five to seven on the suicidality scale. So that was the one that made us think, okay, we want to try to see, can this become a biomarker uh, for suicide? So when you come to emergency room, can we do this test and know, do we need to admit this kid? Or then just ask them, are you having suicidal thoughts right now? And so we did this study for years and just finished it. So we're looking at the data right now. And it's a pool of markers the S100 is one of them, but we're also looking at IL-1B, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and some markers from the uh, kinolinic pathway. Well, we'll be looking forward to uh, the data coming out and maybe having you back, and you can tell us. It'd be great if there was a biomarker that would help, wouldn't it? Right, yes. So it would seem obvious that uh, children that are affected by uh, adverse experiences, you know, it's easy to say to remove the child and to not have it happen in the first place, but of course these things happen. So let's move to treatment. What can we do for these children? Yes, yeah, so the first most effective treatment is to make sure the trauma doesn't continue. Then second, to give the kid enough tools to cope with what's happening. So there's a lot of different kinds of therapy, but the most effective therapy for kids who have been exposed to trauma is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. And different from other therapists is like, doesn't have to be three years, it could be three months teaching the kid some specific tools to manage the symptoms associated with this experience, right? That's our first step, to do therapy, to try to teach tools to manage the symptoms. So let's say the patient is doing this and three months pass and we're still having a lot of symptoms. So sometimes we also use medication when the patient is having depression, anxiety, PTSD. I guess if they are having problems in their frontal lobe and their hippocampus related to these uh, adverse effects in childhood, going to be a lot more difficult to manage that if they have structurally related changes. Would there be any thought that you could reverse that with treatment or is that unknown? So really, there were some studies uh, looking at MRIs on kids who have trauma-focused CVT and the reactivity in the amygdala before and after. And after the treatment, the reactivity of the amygdala decreased. So they were like, so they saw some improvement in the brain after the treatment. So that was great. So that's encouraging. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. What should I do when I have a patient that uh, comes to me that I'm concerned has had these problems and they're now 60 years old? 
So first is to give them the opportunity to talk about it, right? Like sometimes it's one of the hardest things to talk about and it might come in the most unusual circumstances. So you might be seeing a therapist for three years and never mention anything about this. Or you might suddenly come to emergency room for a broken bone. And for some reason, when the patient connects with you and trusts you to a point that they want to bring this up, I think it's very important to give them the space, the privacy and the time to let it do it because it's really hard. And I think assessing trauma is one of the most important things that we do when we see someone to look at different mental health issues, right? Because that could be one of the main triggers for some of the symptoms that we're seeing. And any considerations uh, or differences in approaching adolescents versus adults that you can share with us? Yes. When you're interviewing an adolescent, it's very unlikely that they will report anything if the parent or like the adult is in the room. We have to ask uh, the guardian or the parent to give them some space Because as you know, a lot of people who have been traumatized, they they feel like the victim and they don't want to share that with their parents. So I think it's very important to open the space for them. And even not only about trauma, but in general, it's always very important in kids who are 12 and older to give them like 10 minutes of the appointment where you're just talking with them one-to-one. And what if the parent doesn't want to leave the room? So you slowly uh, start teaching the parent why this is important, right? How can this be helpful? And I think the parents who are up to the concept, like I also do consults in the hospital for kids who have neurologic disorders. I would say 30% of the parents feel uncomfortable leaving your kid to be interviewed alone. But I think the more that you talk to them and you explain them that this is actually going to help you because it's very unlikely that the kid will be open if you're here, then um, the, you're building this rapport and trust and they end up agreeing. So now that we're seeing a lot of our patients virtually, that's one important consideration that we have to think. When you are asking these sensitive questions, we have to ask the parent, can you please give the patient some privacy? And what I see a lot is the parent might move the computer and take the camera out of their face, but they're still sitting next to the patient, right? So what I actually do is I say, okay, can you take to the computer to a different room? or the phone to a different room, because one of the most important parts I have is to have these 10 minutes with the patient where I can openly ask and they can openly respond without being worried about what is my parent thinking about what I'm going to say. Tatiana, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. 
and thank you for listening.